Esther, Esther 9, 1 through 4. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Aswarius to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples, and all the officials of the provinces, and the satraps and the governors, and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. And for Mordecai was, for Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spe- spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for the morning that we have to, today together to, to come together and worship you and uh, pour over your word. Uh, thank you that we're here and we have the privilege to hear the preaching of your word and to learn from it. I pray that we would defend our faith um, with your word, that we would use it as a, as a guide and a light post for our faith and for our further encouragement in the faith and learning your will for us. I pray that we would um, have wisdom and that Adam's work would be made evident through your Holy Spirit to us this morning. Amen. So where we concluded our time, uh, our last time together, was with the reversal of the fortunes of the Jewish people by the use of the edict written by Mordecai. And you'll see that in verse 11 of chapter 8, and we'll jump back here in just a few moments. But again, uh, Mordecai writes a competing edict to the original edict, which was the annihilation of the Jewish people. Ahasuerus empowered Mordecai, as you recall, to be able to pen something of defense for the Jewish people And so he essentially copied the same language, and we'll address that shortly, but verse 11, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force, any people or province that might attack uh, the people of Israel. And so if we were to summarize, as we did last time, where are we then in the drama of the book of Esther? And that is essentially that the Persian Empire is about to descend into civil war. Um... And you can consider the chaos that that brings. We've had that in the history of the United States of America, a a civil war. It's a devastating business. War altogether uh, is a devastating uh, business. And we're uh, uh, acquainted with that uh, quite a bit within American recent history, having, I guess, somewhat perhaps ended what is an otherwise 20-plus year uh, war period within our own country. And then again, as wars continue throughout the course or around the globe. Uh, War uh, leaves many, many, many wounded lives, and there's devastation untold horror. And now, that's where the story of Esther is about to descend, into the chaotic scene of hand-to-hand, neighbor-to-neighbor, member-to-member combat. Now, I do want to draw your attention to notice the response of the Jewish people very carefully to the idea of the edict empowering them to go to war. Okay, so notice very carefully that the Persian Empire now preparing to descend into civil war and notice the response of the Jewish people is twofold. Look at verse 15 and you'll notice that there's joy and gladness at Mordecai's advancement, number one. 
So you see it in verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with great golden crown, a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Okay? And then you look at verse 4 of chapter 9. Mordecai is on the ascendant. Uh, For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. So initially at the sound of being able to gather, uh, to, to organize and prepare a defense, the people of Israel rejoice at this opportunity. And the first point of rejoicing is the fact that one of their own is now in ascendant charge. He is moving to a position of control. And his authority and his power and his influence is spreading abroad. And it, they're noticing it at the citizen level by way of the edicts being published. They're noticing the response of the people to the direction of the edict. And the people of Israel are rejoicing. It's one of our own. So there's joy and gladness at the initial response on the one part because of Mordecai's advancement. But notice, secondly, there's joy and gladness if you look at verse 17. Specifically at the content of the king's command. So uh, if you look at verse 16 and then 17, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Why? Because Mordecai is on the ascendant. So, so by, by corporate identity, one of our own, the Jews together then collectively, light and gladness, joy and honor. So there's the one part. Again, as I draw your attention to part two of the response of Israel, verse 17, they rejoice over the contents of the edict. Verse 17, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Now, again, if you're reading this, it is rather curious As you think, if you put it into contemporary times, it is rather curious that there is joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday, uniformly spread among the Jewish people, very particularly at the prospect of war. Again, to mention it lightly in some measure, if we were just cursory reading, it would be somewhat odd to rejoice, to to get together, to light the candles, to have a feast, to have a holiday, at the prospect of what? Deliverance, no, at the prospect of war. But one writer illuminates this point just briefly as we continue. He says, quote, it can in no way here be taken for granted that when 13 Adar comes, which remember, you remember that's the original date where neighbor is to take to neighbor. War is to break out on the 13th of Adar. This writer, again, shedding light on the, on the response of Israel and how it is a bit rather curious, and we need to figure out what's going on exactly here in the people's response. He says, it can in no way be taken for granted that when 13 Adar comes, no one will rise against the Jews and seek to put the edict into effect. Again, if we receive that comment, it is in no way taken for granted that the thing is settled. That's not why Israel is rejoicing. 
He continues, the crisis that set our story in motion still waits to be fully resolved. Victory may seem secured, but it is yet to be realized. Again, this prompts a question to the careful reader, which I prompt to you to think with me for the next few moments, then we'll draw kind of two ethical elements from the text together. But the question is this, as we read the story line by line, piece by piece, if victory is yet to be realized, right? So, so, so they have no reason to believe that the 13th of Adar has been canceled by the edict. Rather, what they formulate is we can assemble and we can defend ourselves. To such an idea of defense, there is exuberant joy. So if victory is yet to be realized and the prospect of war is upon the people of God, why the gladness? Why the feast, joy, and a holiday? There's a theological point to be made here that we must draw from this passage and apply within the lives of those who are here within this text and their understanding and, of course, to our own. It's one we have noted before, but we must make it again. And so I submit to you again as you consider how is it that you hear of we're about to descend into civil war and we the people rejoice. There is a theological point to be made. And again, it is this. It is that the arc of history bends toward life for all who trust in God. I've made this point before, but again, I wish to state it, and then I will walk you through two texts that you'll witness it. Again, I could pick numerous texts, but I simply picked two, one of the Old Covenant and one of the New. But again, remember the theological point of which the people of Israel embrace is the arc of history bends toward life for all who trust in God. This is the ethic. This is the theology that they have, that they, that they have uh, received and embraced. I'll draw your attention. You don't have to turn there. I'm simply going to read the text for you very quickly. But it's Deuteronomy 31. Again, a presence within the law, which the community within the Persian Empire of the Jews would have had some measure of by transmission and understanding and religious right. Deuteronomy, and they would know from the stories being told. It's upon the conquest, and Moses is moving off of the scene. Joshua is emerging as the new leader for conquest. Moses mentions, I'm 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this, Jordan. The Lord, your God himself, will go over before you. Do you, do you see what's happening here in the conquest? He'll go before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. Again, they rejoice that Mordecai is on the ascendant and they rejoice at the prospect of defense. How? An awareness of redemptive history. Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken and the Lord will do to them as he spoke. 
the kings, all of them, and the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. So do what now at the prospect of conquest? Do what now at the prospect of war? Be strong and courageous. Upon what grounds? Again, you're facing an entire nations of people. You're a minority group within 127 provinces, and you've just been told, don't worry, you can defend yourselves. And the people rejoice. Upon what grounds? For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. So much so, Moses attaches to the promise, he will not leave you, nor will he forsake you. So sure is that promise, I draw your attention to it, still for the people of God in the New Covenant. As if it were needed to be updated, but we embrace both Old and New Covenants together as the people of God as we receive these principles through faith. These texts are written for us. So also our Lord, so sure and so sweet is the promise that God will never leave and God will never forsake. So our Lord says to us in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You see, whether it's Old Covenant history or New Covenant promise, it's the same theologically. The arc of history bends toward life for all who trust in God. So surely is this promise and this fact of history attested to across the pages of redemptive history. And you're aware of it. Any reader of your Old Testament text is, re is, is seeing the scenes of conquest and the conquering power of God through his people to subdue others, to push out enemies, to deliver their own. So attested to across redemptive history is the promise that the arc of history bends towards life for all who trust in God, that even Israel's enemies want to find shelter before the war breaks out through false conversions. Think of the power of that history that's told. You remember it was on the lips of Zeresh, uh, Haman's wife. If, if this man belongs to Israel, so surely will you fall before him. I... Uh, also here then, you see it as well. Notice that after the feast and a holiday comment on the Jewish people who embrace the promise that God is for them, and as so with Moses through Joshua, so also in Christ, that he is with them and that no one will take them and defeat them. Notice the text of those who are outside of the faith at the end of verse 17. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. And the motivation for such is right there at the end of the verse, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. 
skin. It's not just the people of God who recognize the proof that the arc of history bends toward life for all who trust in God, but it's even the naysayers and the wicked. If I could press you just a little further before we move on from this point that you would consider and lay to conscience, consider that this will not be the last of man's attempts at a false conversion when judgment looms. I draw your attention to one other text which you probably are very familiar with. I'll read it for you. In Matthew's Gospel, I'll give you the references, Matthew 7. You know this text. But again, consider that this will not be, nor was it the first in redemptive history, nor will it be the last attempt that men will fake convert, false conversions when judgment looms, when reality lays hold. Our Lord then says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, if I could lay the application to your conscience for you to meditate upon and consider from the text of the Old Testament to the promises of Christ and the new and the warnings of future judgments and false conversion. Have you this day been converted to Christ? Does your faith as an empty vessel without merit, does your faith rest upon him wholly as he has freely offered to you in the gospel? So evident is the fact of his deliverance for his people and the punishment of the wicked that even here within our text of Esther, those who thought they were going to gain mastery over the people of God are now falsely converting to be them. So also in the day that is to come. Today, if you hear his voice, the writer of Hebrews says, repent. Now, as the day of war arrives, we need to be careful and read the actions of chapter 9 in the moments of warfare in light of Mordecai's decree. So I draw your attention once again. I'll read verse 11 in total, and that will be the lens that we read chapter 9 and its activities through. So keep this in mind. There's a few questions we have to answer. Verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather. And then notice a key word here is to defend their lives. And, and, and you have to keep that in mind, and, and, I'll, and I'll make proof of that as we walk through the moments and the activities of chapter 9. But keep in mind that they are now able to do what? Defend their lives, okay? And then, and then the, the defense is described as similar to the edict, or well, word for word to the edict before it. To destroy as a part of defense. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people, this is allowable, or province that might attack them. And now you're noticing as a reader, you have questions maybe in your mind that we may briefly touch on and address, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Verse one begins on the day of warfare, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. You're keeping in mind verse 11, what are they allowed to do? And what are they doing? 
on the 13th day, so it's go time, on the 13th day of the same, here it is, when the king's command and edict were about to be uh, carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to do what? To lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them. Uh, Again, the motivations for such is the same with the people who are falsely converting. Uh, uh, No, 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 don't, don't, don't touch me and my family. We're Jewish. Why the quick turnaround? Well, the author tells us, fear had fallen on the peoples. Same thing at the end of verse 2. For fear of them had fallen on everybody. The momentum had changed. Verse 3, all of the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents, everybody in the governmental organization who has power, all of them help the Jews. Why? Because fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. Now, I do want to mention, in fairness, that there is a discussion for us to be had regarding Israel's permission to kill the women and the children of their attackers. I'm not seeking to dodge that content. Um, There's a a place for us to to discuss the role of, of holy war in the Old Testament text whether we're talking about Canaan or other lands where the Israelites were called to go in and to annihilate absolutely every last person, including women and children. I'm not wishing to dodge that whatsoever, but I do have to caution that that's a broader discussion and web of ideas than we have time for this morning. So I, 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 I'm not addressing it on the one hand because it's an enormous conversation that, that we don't have time to completely fill out. Maybe we'd have to do its own case study on holy war in the Old Covenant text and be able to explicate that fairly in order to do justice to it and walk away fair-handedly uh, from the text of Holy Scripture. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, also a reason not to address it this morning is because the author here takes pains to describe who they are in fact taking vengeance on. So on the one hand, the permission to do so to women and children, yeah, we could talk about that. We just, it's just not here in this text, though it's permitted, because in this text particularly, the author is careful to say, this is who Israel executed during this day of defense. So let's follow after it. What appears to be the case here within the text as we go line by line through chapter 9, and we consider who is it that Israel gains reversal mastery over? Who are these individuals? Is it the women? Is it the children? Is it the men? Well, again, our author takes pains to make clear to us by the use of repetition that only, quote, those who sought their harm were executed. Another quotation from the text, the enemies who hated them Israel annihilated. Another piece within the text is the ten sons of Haman were those who were annihilated and then they will be placed upon the pillar gallows as their father. And then you'll notice there's 500 men and you see that down through the text. So uh, I I should have shown you the verses. Verse 2 at the end to lay hands on those who Israel's laying hands on those who sought their harm. Verse 5, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. Who? The enemies. 
and they did as they pleased to those who hated them. In, in the descriptor, in the conclusion, verse 6, it's 500 men. Then again, you jump to verse 10, there's 10 other men who are executed. Verse 11 shows you that very same day, the number of those killed in Susa in the citadel were reported by the king, and then you see the number of verse 12. 500 who? 500 men. As you jump back to verse 15, the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed who? Or how many? 300 who? Men. And then finally you see this total at the end of verse uh, 16. The number killed of Israel's enemies, those who despised and hated them, were 75,000 of those who hated them. So again... The entire total seems to be, as the author lays pains to tell us, it's these men, it's these men, it's all those who hated them, it's these men. These are the ones who have said to have been massacred. So it seems like uh, it's not what they did was to take after the children and the women. Now again, I'm not trying to get out of like the, the difficulty of handling that. It just doesn't seem to be our purpose within this text. The permission to do so is driven right on from the edict that was before it. Mordecai wrote a competing edict in full justification of doing so. But what appears to take place is, again, the author takes pains to prove out Israel was defending themselves and doing so adequately against the men who hated them. Another piece throughout the text, just to get a picture of the entire warfare of chapter 9, it occurred in one day throughout the provinces. Um, as you notice, uh, it was on the 13th day. If you want to jump up to verse 15, the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day. And that was because Esther requested in verse 13. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa and ten sons were hanged. The Jews in Susa gathered also then on the 14th day. So you jump down to uh, verse 17. This was on the 13th day of the month when there was the uh, uh, 75,000. You notice the verse in 17, the 13th day and the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. Um, verse 18, the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th day, and they rested on the 15th. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month as a day of gladness and feasting as a, as a holiday uh, and a day in which they send gifts and foods to one another. Again, if you consider the villages are executing the plan on the 13th, um, so they go to war on the day of the edict. It seems to satisfy in the villages or abroad, shed abroad in the provinces one day of battle and massacre and the Jews gain mastery over their enemies. It seems to be as you follow the text that there was yet another day in the 14th, particularly in Susa where the sons of Haman were executed and anybody that was left um, as their enemies. So it was two days, 13 and 14, or just the 13th, but well within the stretch of three days, uh, Israel had massacred all of their enemies. Now, what do we make of this text? The blood, the gore, the devastation that is now rooted out. And if we take this number, it's hard to comprehend. 
because we're not soldiers in battle seeing the gruesome effects, but 75,000 bodies laid waste is a big number. Uh, how do we make sense of this explanation in Scripture? Well, if we put all of the pieces together in chapter 9 as best as we can, what we see is that it appears that the Jews directly defended themselves against their attackers. Making their actions in chapter 9, according to the Edict of Mordecai, a matter of personal, familial, and national defense. Again, it wasn't motivated by pride. It wasn't motivated by greed. It was motivated by self-defense, the preservation of self and family. Further, I want to clarify to you, again, as the author makes pains to show the distinction of Israel from those who are surrounding them and those who wish them harm in Israel's response. Notice also the edict indicated at the very end of verse 11 that Israel was free to do what? Well, to plunder their goods, steal all their stuff. And this has been quite controversial in the Old Covenant text. Taking or leaving, uh, uh, burning and, and, and doing away with and not hoarding any of the nation's riches. Lest you grow proud and say, look at how we have improved ourselves by taking other nations' uh, items and plunder. Here in the edict, uh, the, the Jews were able to turn the tables on their enemy. Oh, you're going to steal my stuff? Well, I'm going to kill you instead and I'm going to steal all your stuff. This is not the nature of the exchange. Remember, we started out where they were rejoicing in a day of gladness and peace. Why? Because they know God will deliver them from their enemies. And they don't need to take their stuff to prove it. Notice verse 10 of chapter 9. The writer is very careful to note about the people of God in the situation of warfare. It was not a mission to enrich themselves off the nations. Um, again, though there was permission to do so according to the edict, notice the careful kind of consideration of the ethics uh, with warfare. Verse 10, uh, after they killed the sons of Haman, notice the last statement, they laid no hand on the plunder. And you think, well, maybe that group didn't. Notice very carefully, again, we have to follow where the text is leading, that we would be fair to all of it. Where they went wrong, where they were right, where it was reasonable, where it was not. Notice very carefully, yet again, you notice in verse 15, by way of repetition, the ethics of warfare here for Israel in the Persian Empire. They killed 300 men in Susa, and the comment carefully is to remind you, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Finally, there's one more piece within the text to, again, lest we miss it, they're on a mission to just enrich themselves. They're as brutal as the people who were attacking them. It sounds like it's on par. There is no way to look at this situation as God's deliverance. It's a bunch of people losing their minds. No, it is not. If we're fair at all, carefully receiving it. Thirdly, at the end of verse 16, the enemies are killed. There's 75,000 of those who hated them. It's a statement of defense. And finally, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Again, 
The writer is laboring at this point in order to show that the actions of the people of God that day were not motivated simply by malice, by greed, by sheer covetousness and violation of God's holy law, but rather their actions that day in all fairness to the biblical text is by natural self-defense and natural self-preservation. They are right to do so. You see, the necessary implication, this is where I start working towards my conclusion with you about how to read this text and the devastation that Israel brought to its enemies. The necessary implication that we derive from this text is to the just use of deadly force for Israel is that a person both then and now must have the ability to do so. Again, Israel possesses the ability to effect deadly force upon their enemies when they are given the opportunity to do so. You recall the perplexing piece of the text and how to meditate on that and think of that both then and now, that the opportunity to pursue an enemy, to give a sufficient defense and deadly force, Israel rejoiced at the opportunity. If you think about it just for a moment and we consider the details of the text and don't just rush past them, remember, it would not be glorious to think that you have an opportunity simply to defend yourself if you didn't possess the weaponry or the capabilities with the tools necessary to effectuate that self-defense. How great would it be? You can defend yourself. Against who? Against him. And he's standing there and he's got like two swords and uh, you know, a handful of guns tied around his waistband, obviously not here, but now. And you've been given all rights to simply defend yourself. I don't think you'd probably throw yourself a holiday or a feast or rejoice with great gladness. There might be there exposed a lack of preparation. We see here by the necessary implication of the text that Israel rejoiced at the opportunity to defend is that they believe they have the ability to effectuate deadly force upon their enemies. How? Through preparation. Again, I know this can get political at moments, and I wish it not to. I simply will stay out of how we would think politically, but I do want to drive your thoughts ethically as I conclude. Because if we consider this text very carefully, and we draw conclusions from it, which is our aim and our work to do, and we seek to apply these into our lives to live wisely in God's world, here I would submit to you that within the scope of this book, it is made plain, abundantly clear in this particular text, that Israel, through ordinary providence and preparation, was armed with the tools necessary to gain mastery over those who hated them. When we think of being units of family, those who are given to our care, stewardship for protection and self-preservation, we must think carefully about the ethics of being able to defend our homes, ourselves, and those under our care. Israel had an opportunity simply to defend. 
and they rejoiced. They were prepared. So also, God works within his people, not just miraculously at times, as we see, but ordinarily through providence. Do you take seriously the consideration of caring for yourself, caring for your spouse, caring for those submitted to your care, that you'd be able to prepare a given defense for your home, for safety, for faith, for love, and the possession of the ability to resist those who would seek to take it. The right to protect oneself, family, and neighbor against unjust violence is fundamentally bound to God's moral law. We see that on display in this text. Let me conclude with you with two thoughts from this text. What should we take away as Israel's warfare unfolds in chapter 9? Number one, the arc of history, as I submitted to you before, the arc of history bends toward life for all who trust in God by faith. Particularly as I question and call to mind, does your faith rest upon Christ as he's freely offered to you in the gospel? Secondly, in this age, God is pleased to deliver his people through the use of ordinary providence and self-preparation. Let us lay that to conscience and consider. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would give us uh, light of, of, of thought and mind as we consider the precepts of your word, as we consider the text before us. Uh, what is our obligation as we consider giving a, a sufficient defense for the care of our lives and the lives of those in our care? As we see it here, as Israel rejoices the opportunity to provide a defense, the implication clearly being that your peoples uh, were prepared to do so. I pray that you would allow us to think through the ideas of our homes, of our families, uh, take care of those entrusted to us, that we'd be wise, that we'd be able. I pray that you would help us as we walk through this age to always have as our point of anchor is Christ, wherein above the earth, beyond it, we rest upon him as he has freely offered to us in the gospel, guide and aim our lives, our directions, our family, and our ministry. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Give you just a moment there and quiet thoughtfulness.